Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The T word, treason, has been going through my brain a lot recently. Partially, it's external causes. As the two nations of which I am a citizen, the U.S. and U.K., go through self-created crises of governance, treason and its associated word traitor are coming back into use. In Britain, the leaders of the Brexit campaign watch as reality bites into their terrible idea and are not above calling those who want to avoid the unfolding catastrophe traitors. Partially, treason is a word I've also been mulling internally. I spent the best part of October in the U.S. making a documentary on the midterms, and I met some folks who were aware of the damage done by the Trump presidency, but didn't seem to care. They were deriving benefits from it, and that was all that counted for them. The subject of my documentary was the Democrats, but by chance I got invited to a party in a city along the Mexican border where all the guests were Republicans. It was not an occasion for recording sound, just to drink well and enjoy some German and Mexican food, which was surprising, but apparently German immigrants settled along the Rio Grande in considerable number. There was not much love for Donald Trump expressed that evening. All of the wealthy, upper-middle-aged couples in the room, about ten in all, were well aware of his failings, but they were still all for him. He had delivered on the tax cut. They liked his rhetoric on immigration. Most of the men were entrepreneurs, fellows who made their money by having their fingers in a couple of different pies, some of them over the border in Mexico. They owned maquiladores, the factories that sprouted up after the NAFTA trade deal was signed 25 years ago. The hypocrisy of supporting a man who goes around promising to bring jobs back to America while making a nice chunk of change from sending jobs 20 miles over the border was something they were aware of, but it made no difference. Their taxes were lower. They had more money in their pockets. They didn't mind tough talk about building a wall, even though they knew it wouldn't be built. It was a pleasant evening, and the cynicism I heard was not all that new to me. I love the border region and have reported from it occasionally and have heard this kind of talk before. But in the current situation, with Donald Trump doing unprecedented damage to the ties that bind Americans to one another and America to the rest of the world, it seemed morally wrong. I drove the flat, open highways of southwest Texas from the border back to San Antonio with a phrase running through my head, none dare call it treason. I haven't thought of that phrase since I was in high school 50-plus years ago. It's the title of a book, one of the foundational texts of the modern paranoid Republican Party, written by a guy named John Stormer. It was referenced by Richard Hofstadter in his classic The Paranoid Style in American Politics, you can listen to my half-hour on the paranoid style, which aired on the BBC just before the Republican primaries began in 2016 in the archive section at the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. None dare call it treason is an anachronism today, a Cold War reds-under-the-bed screed that accuses elites of being pro-communist. It was distributed by the Barry Goldwater campaign, it didn't help Goldwater much, but it inculcated a hatred of liberal elites that is still a bedrock of paranoid conservative thinking that you find running through the Trump base, although not the wealthy, educated folks I was enjoying conversation with that evening on the border. As the Texas miles rolled swiftly by, the title of the book narrowed down in my head to the word treason. It's a raw, emotive word. 
which is why those who indulge in political paranoia and demagoguery like to use it, whips up supporters to a violent frenzy, makes it easier to deny the fellowship of citizenship. An accusation of treason casts a person outside the group. You are not my fellow citizen. You are a traitor. You won't hear the word treason spoken much by liberals, because it really is a fighting word. I think people who are left of center prefer to use treason in its legal sense to keep the emotion out of it. The definition of treason in Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution is very specific. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Well, no American is levying war against the U.S., although... Giving aid and comfort to enemies is open for debate, provided you regard Russia as an enemy, as John Stormer did when he wrote his pamphlet. But it may be that soon liberals have to think of using the word treason in a broader sense. Since the midterm elections, something has changed in the U.S. Shortly after I came back from Texas, I was on Dateline London, a BBC current affairs discussion program. Just before airtime, Janet Daly, a very conservative columnist for a very, very pro-conservative newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, turned to me and asked, This is it, isn't it? He's done. The he being Donald Trump. I answered, Yes and before the red light came on, hastily whispered my three reasons for saying so. Democrats had outpolled Republicans by more than 9 million votes nationally. The entire Orange County congressional delegation is now Democrat. Orange County was where the modern paranoid conservative movement first took root in the 1950s. To lose the OC in just 22 months in office is an astounding political feat, one that even the Trump sycophants who run and finance the Republican Party have to notice. Finally, Trump's staff seem to have lost interest in protecting him. So there is an end to the Trump anomaly in sight, whether it's in 2020 or before, and when that happens, there will be a reckoning. How will the majority who didn't vote for Trump in 2016 and whose numbers have increased since then, view those who served him or simply remained loyal? How do societies that go through a period of self-inflicted trauma deal with one another when that period is over? With malice towards none? Not usually. When the German occupation of France came to an end, there was such a reckoning. Some of this calling to account took place in the street, and it wasn't gentle. You've seen the pictures of women who slept with the enemy having their heads shaved. But the big showpiece was the trial of Marshal Philippe Pétain for treason. Pétain had run the Vichy government during the Nazi occupation. Treason is not just a legal term. As I said, it's an emotive one. It describes the act of breaking faith with the long-standing national ethos. As Europe failed to settle into peace and prosperity following the World War I armistice, buffeted between totalitarian ideologies, European writers frequently used the word treason in this sense. In 1927, French author Julien Banda wrote La Trahison des Clercs, Treason of the Intellectuals. In this popular essay, Benda criticized academics and professional pundits who had forsaken Enlightenment principles of universal brotherhood and jumped on the bandwagon of ethno-nationalism, proselytizing for ideas that lead men to rise up against other men, as he wrote, the chief of which are racial passions, class passions, and national passions. Their treason was engaging in 
the intellectual organization of political hatreds. Another definition of treason was coined in the exceptional circumstances of the summer of 1945, when Pétain's trial took place. Pétain was France's great hero of World War I. He had continued in public service via politics in the interwar period. When the Second World War began and France was overrun, the National Assembly asked him to take charge of the government. By then, the Germans had divided the country for administrative purposes. Pétain's government ruled the unoccupied zone in the southern part of France and set up its capital in the spa resort of Vichy. In 1940, many French people did not see the establishment of the Vichy government as an act of treachery. The marshal was 84 years old and had long been a figurehead for the wide strand of French political opinion that was nationalist, not all that keen on democracy, and deeply anti-Semitic. In other words, the millions who still thought Alfred Dreyfus was guilty. What kind of traitor was Pétain? In the legalistic sense, he hadn't sold state secrets, he had not overthrown legitimate government, he had not levied war against France. The trial began in an uproar, with Pétain, by then 89 years old, saying he had acted to spare the French people more agonies. Eventually, the very meaning of the word treason became a subject of judicial inquiry. Chief Judge Paul Mongebeau asked a number of prominent Frenchmen to define the term, among them Léon Blum. Blum had been France's prime minister in the middle of the 1930s. A member of the Socialist Party, he had led the Popular Front, a coalition government of center and left-wing parties. Blum was Jewish and had survived the war in Buchenwald concentration camp. In her history of 1940s Paris, Left Bank, Agnès Poirier quotes Bloom's elegant definition of treason. An absence of moral confidence was the base of the Vichy government, and that is treason. Treason is the act of selling out. Patan was found guilty of treason and spent the rest of his life in prison. I read Bloom's words shortly after I returned from the U.S., and I immediately thought of the wealthy Republicans I had met by chance on that pleasant evening in a Texas border city. Moral confidence might have made them examine their hypocrisy and perhaps change their behavior, but it was absent. Of course, America today has virtually nothing in common with France under occupation, when collaboration with the military occupier was a daily act of necessity for some and treason for others. But the way in which the word treason was used back then does have some relevance. Bloom's definition, the absence of moral confidence and selling out, and Benda's, the intellectual organization of political hatreds, describe the president and too many of his party. Stormer's book, None Dare Call It Treason, also has relevance, not because of its contents, but because of the title's origins. It comes from a piece of witty doggerel written by an Elizabethan courtier, Sir John Harrington. Treason doth never prosper. What's the reason? Why, if it prosper, none dare call it treason. As Trump's fortunes become less prosperous in the months ahead, I have a feeling the word treason will be in use more and more. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and you can make a donation there to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.